Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Science Changing Life. I'm your guest host, Lauren Fish, and today we'll be talking about everything from pandemic preparedness to drug discovery. Joining us is Sumit Chanda, an infectious disease expert and immunologist who played a pivotal role in uncovering new treatments at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. We start off today hearing about why Sumit decided to pursue a career in science despite going against his parents' advice. So my parents were both scientists, so they immigrated from India. The one piece of advice they had for me is don't go into science. So <laughs> you betrayed their uh, Yes, uh, I think uh, you know in a way it was a little bit rebellion, but you know I started doing uh, internships in labs, you know, in, in college and then over the summer and I started really liking it, right? I actually, you know, I mean I like my science courses, but I really like being in the lab. And then what actually clinched it for me is coming to San Diego, I had an internship at the Salk Institute for a year. So it was in between undergrad and grad. And it was really to see, hey, could I do this for a living? Is this something that I want to do day in and day out? So why did your parents not want you to pursue a career in science? Then? Probably for the same reason that everyone else is complaining about, right? It's, you know, and, and especially then uh, the opportunities for industry wasn't there. Yeah. Right? And academics is hard. It's highly competitive. I think they just wanted me to be a doctor and have a stable salary. And, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was kind of dabbling with pre-med, but the opportunity in science to not only kind of make discoveries, but make discoveries that impact human health and broad swaths of human health, mm -hmm. right? Not just the, the patients that you see, but really kind of move the needle on cures and treatments for people that 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000, right, people can be affected. So is that that passion for wanting to help the broader population, is that eventually what led you to study immunology and virology? Yeah, you know, I mean, it was also when I was at the Salk, that was what I was doing. Uh, we were looking at viruses and, and gene therapy and, and HIV. So I kind of got the bug for that at Stanford and my graduate work. We did a lot of technology development, right? And, and so this was Silicon Valley during the first dot-com boom. And I really saw the ability of kind of new ideas and new technologies to be transformed into really impacting the world. Things that happened there in the 90s and until now changed the world, right? You know, it was Florence in the time of the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. and you you really saw the ability to have discovery and innovation impact civilization broadly, right? right. And that's really kind of the, the synthesis of that learning experience, that kind of transformative experience. And my passion for virology and immunology was started kind of early, led me back down to San Diego, where I started at uh, GNF, which is Novartis, mm -hmm. which was at the time run by Pete Schultz. Oh. Um, so, you know, we <laughs> it go all back. comes full it circle. It all comes back. We go way back. I've known Pete for 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, just, you know, tremendous admiration for him as a leader mm -hmm. and as a scientist. But that's really where we started. It was right after the human genome was sequenced, and Novartis wanted us to build technologies to be really able to mine the genome to come up with next generation of therapies, mm -hmm. right? And, and so my passion was infectious disease. I was working on HIV and influenza and other things there, but we'd also partner to do metabolic diseases like diabetes or cancer or, mm -hmm. or so on, because these technologies were relatively universal. And we still do that, right? We do have, you know, our lab is really 
driven by technologies. I'm kind of, you know, a, a technology geek. And anytime I see anything kind of shiny and new out there, I'm like, oh, we should do that, right? <laughs> bring and, that in. Yeah, bring it on. And, you know, my, my postdocs are, I know they're all rolling their eyes, right? When <laughs> but, you know, I mean, this is really, I think that for me, that's what drives innovation, right? Either inventing or adapting new technologies, implying it to problems that have been previously intractable. Right. And I think that definitely goes back to your, your overall mission with your work here is that you want to make a big impact. You right. want to bring that innovation. And even you talking about Silicon Valley kind of as that Florence during the Renaissance era, it's like you're bringing in all of that innovation right. in that area. Right. And, 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 you know, I mean, one of the things in the lab and, and probably the chagrin of many people in the lab, I, I don't want to do things that someone else would be doing in six months or a year mm -hmm. or even five years. Right. Uh, we want to do things that, you know, if we weren't here it wouldn't get done in five years or 10 years, right? I mean, that, those are the kind of big shots we like to take. And, you know, part of that is there's a lot of failure involved, right? Mm -hmm. When you're doing high-risk activities, by definition, you're going to fail more than you succeed. But when you do succeed, it really changes things, right? We should be asking very hard questions that if we are able to answer them, have the ability to change the world. Absolutely. And, I mean, science is so inherently complicated and you have to have that curiosity driving you to uncover things, everything from new mechanisms to new treatments, new technologies. You really kind of do need that full picture. Yeah, I always joke, right? We don't enter this profession for the fame or the money, right? It's about the passion, right? Mm -hmm. It's about really going after and doing something that you love. I hope your parents uh, are proud of you for, yeah. for pursuing this passion yes. then yes. at this point, yes. <laughs> that it's not just an act of rebellion. So what led you eventually to Scripps to then? You know, obviously you've, you've known Pete for a long time. Uh, yes. And uh, your involvement, yeah, with Caliber as well. Yeah, so I had been working with the folks at Caliber, and actually a few folks at Scripps for a while now. So in between uh, Novartis and Scripps, I was at Sanford Burnham right mm -hmm. across the street. And, you know, we were doing a lot of drug discovery. We were doing a lot of virology and a lot of immunology. I'd set up some collaborations, but it was really the pandemic that solidified that. The opportunities of uh, what they were doing in drug discovery at Caliber and in virology and immunology mm -hmm. at Scripps really aligned much more to what I wanted to do, right? And I think for many of us, the pandemic really kind of solidified that, hey, this is no longer a hypothetical, right? right? When we're not ready, for a pandemic, a million Americans die. And this is something that we can't let happen again. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of us, starting from the scientists to the politicians to the medical infrastructure, all of us need to be better prepared for the next pandemic. And for me, the place to be able to do that is at Scripps, mm -hmm. right? Unequivocally, the virology expertise, the immunology expertise, the chemical biology expertise, the structural biology expertise, and the drug discovery expertise at Caliber is, I mean, we like to say it's the best in academics. I think they can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any drug discovery right. uh, outfit that I've seen, okay? Yeah. These folks, these guys and gals are the best in the business at what they do, and I've worked with a number of multinational pharmaceutical companies and these folks can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them uh, on any day of the week. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a true testament, especially since you've been on the industry side, you've been on the academia side, so that you can vouch for 
the quality of the people it's there. Incredible. It's pretty incredible. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I mean, people don't realize how lucky we are to have this caliber of folks, and no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, was that? Uh, uh, Most of pharma's drug discovery projects come from academics, mm -hmm. okay? But only a select few of them do. And some of that serendipity, some of that is, you know, things that kind of everybody focuses on. But there's a gap between the discovery that academics make and the therapeutic innovation that's required to save lives. And that gap is there because most academics, almost all academics, have never been in pharma. And the types of activities that you need to do to take your discovery and get it to a point where it will excite somebody in drug discovery to say, hey, I want to invest some of my resources in pursuing this, most academics don't do. Mm -hmm. And they're not particularly sexy type of activities, right? They don't get you into the New York Times or a science paper or whatever it is your kind of scientific ambitions mm -hmm. are. But I feel like because we know what those are, that we have an obligation to be able to do that, right? To be able to take our discoveries and move them into a place where I could walk back to Novartis or to Merck or to Gilead and say, hey, look, we have something interesting for you. Mm -hmm. You really want to take a look. And yes, we've checked all the boxes that you like to see. Right, this is ready. Yeah, this is ready for you. And, and you know, I mean, I, I, you know, we're good at preclinical. Those guys are the best in the world at taking drugs and moving them into, you know, a clinical space, right? Mm -hmm. And so we, we want to partner with them at right. some point, but we want to partner with them on things that are innovative that not everybody else is doing. But I think that's really the sweet spot for academic drug discovery, mm -hmm. is to really transition our discoveries into therapeutic innovation. And I think, you know, Scripps has got to be second to none in, uh, in the world in, in terms of being able well, to do Well, especially having, yeah, the drug discovery entity, you know, under its own roof and being able to really just right. translate immediately A into that. Absolutely. And, and again, I can't overemphasize enough, right? The, what the structural biology group brings, what the, the, the chemistry groups bring. I mean, again, you know, Nobel Prize this year in yeah. chemistry, right? I mean, it's almost becoming cliche that someone <laughs> at Scripps wins a Nobel Prize. But this is, you know, I mean, this is the kind of, yeah, this is the way it's happening, right? This is the kind of innovation that we're surrounded by and allows us to stand on the shoulder of giants, right? to really bring innovation to the therapeutic space. Yeah, and push right? the needle. Yes. And I think I've just heard time and time again through talking to various scientists at Scripps um, how collaborative it is here. And you're saying, you know, all these different scientists coming together and working on these really difficult issues and the necessity of that just because to solve these huge scientific or medical problems, you require that multifacetedness. Right. And, 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 you know, it's not just collaborative in the space of the virologists and immunologists collaborate and the, the chemical biologists. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is like- It's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere, right? I mean, in most places that I see, right, there are there are just these silos and that, yes, they will collaborate, but only if you're like one degree away from what yeah. I'm doing. But what I found is, you know, I've gone in and talked to folks and they're like, oh yeah, this is great, let's right. do and it. And they love just yeah. having these conversations, yeah, they have these, conversations yeah. asking questions. Exactly. Kind of conversation. Right. And, and you know, spurs, no, yeah. exactly. And, and they're just extraordinarily open to just trying new things. And, you know, I think that having this kind of environment where you can get the best people in the world at what they do, 
but also working with the other best people yeah. in the world, right? Because innovation really happens kind of at that transition zone mm -hmm. to me. You can synthesize two things. My favorite metaphor is always the iPhone. Every piece of the iPhone existed. The MP3 player, cell mm -hmm. phones, all of that existed before Steve Jobs said, hey, let's just, condense let's just put together. this into one thing that you can stick in your pocket. <laughs> But that, that synthesis changed the world, mm -hmm. right? In, in a way that, you know, I mean, you can go to any corner of the world now. I mean, I travel a lot. And there, everyone has a smartphone, right? I think that that's the kind of synthesis that Scripps really fosters here is that, you know, bringing in different aspects of chemistry and biology to solve problems that were previously intractable. In the earliest days of the pandemic, Sumit played a significant role in tracking down existing medicines that could help treat COVID-19. He dives into how he and his immunology colleagues formed a COVID-19 dream team of sorts, and all of the hoops they jumped through during those first few months of 2020. Yeah, so early on, I had a postdoc in the lab. Uh, his name is Xin Ying. He now runs a lab uh, back in China, but he was in the lab, and he had gone home for the winter break. And, you know, he sends me a text and he says, look, pneumonia of unknown ideology coming out in Hubei province. Um, you know, we look to China usually for kind of flu, mm -hmm. right, flu spillovers. Um, but uh, usually when there's, you know, uh, when, it's, when it's bacterial, people can diagnose it, right? Um, and, and say, okay, it's bacterial. You know, it's always concerning when there's something causing pneumonia that you don't know what it is, right? And then about a week later, I get a text that's two words, novel coronavirus. And I was like, you know, come home, we have work to do. Absolutely. Right? And you know, anybody who was paying attention, novel coronavirus, novel in influenza virus, should have been the top of your pandemic bingo card for 20 years, right? And at that point, I think people were thinking, okay, well, it could turn out to be SARS mm -hmm. um, where, or MERS where it just burned itself out. It wasn't as infectious. Uh, it wasn't, yeah. yeah, it wasn't as infectious. It didn't, you know. But our stance was, look, at least the numbers in China suggest that there is going to be a, a high level of deaths mm -hmm. and uh, illnesses that are associated with this. So even if there's not a contagion, if there's not kind of an interna international pandemic, we need to start working on this as quickly as possible. Yeah, severe. And so, you know, we got together, a friend of mine, a uh, colleague that I'm working with on virology, uh, influenza guy, he's uh, Adolfo Garcia Sostra. He actually resurrected the 1918 influenza virus. Oh, um, wow. And so we always kid with them, like, why would you do a thing like that? <laughs> um, but I mean, there are uh, great reasons to do it, right? We know a lot more about that Absolutely. virus now. So I was like, you know, look, we should start working on this. And he's like, yeah, of course. The problem was at the time we couldn't get the virus out of China. And so what we needed to do is start working with a lab in China uh, so we could start looking for drugs. And so a colleague of mine set up a collaboration with the University of Hong Kong. And this was with one of the uh, investigators that uh, identified the original SARS. Uh, and so they had a lot of experience in, in working with coronaviruses. And they had SARS-CoV-2 from patients in Hong Kong mm -hmm. that were, they were working in with the lab. And I also called up my good friend Arnab Chatterjee at Caliber. They have this unbelievable collection of about 13,000 known drugs. Um, so this is called the Reframe Collection. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it wasn't purpose-built for the pandemic, but uh, it came boy, in it very came in right? And so our thinking was, look, this is an emerging endemic infection with pandemic potential. We don't have time. I mean, usually it takes 10 years to make a drug. We've accelerated things to two. <laughs> which is but, insane. <laughs> which is insane, uh, and, and which really shows that if we put our minds to it, we can probably move things more quickly. But, you know, at the time, our best hope was really to find a drug that was already known to be safe in humans that we could administer as quickly Just as quickly, possible. Right. And so this is why we wanted to sift through these 13,000 drugs that Caliber had made. So all drugs that have been in humans, not just FDA approved. Uh, I think they spent something like $20 million uh, of investment from uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation mm-hmm. to build this. And, and so we said, okay, well, we want to screen these drugs, okay, and see if we can find something that has some activity. So the plan was Laura Riva, who's now at Caliber, but was working in my lab at the time. She was going to pack a suitcase and go to Hong Kong wow. and show them how to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is what's called a BSL-3, biosafety level 3. So, you know, it's the whole spacesuit thing. A lot of so, precautions. Yeah, she was trained on how to do that, so that's why we were sending her over. And then around, I think, early February was when the travel ban hit, right? So she could leave. But she couldn't come back. She could back. not come back. Yeah. And she's like, I don't want to go. And I'm like, I don't blame you. And so we improvised. So we mailed everything over. Of course, the package got lost, right? And everything's, you know, everything's on dry ice. And, you know, and the world it, wasn't such you know, and, and my lab manager uh, at the time, Paul De Asus, you know, he was on the phone with the shipping company going, you gotta put it here, you gotta, oh I mean, we didn't God. even know if it was gonna get there. Finally, we had a call from Hong Kong saying it showed up and it was full of dry ice, so everything Amazing. made it there. Um, Best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, I know, it was, you know, I mean, it, it, I think it went through like two places that it wasn't supposed to be, and then someone finally got it, you know, and you know, we were impressing upon them that, hey, this is for the pandemic, and da da da. This is critical. Uh, yeah, this is critical, and, you know, I think somebody someplace said, all right, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take this and make sure it gets to where it needs to go. And then what Laura would do, what they did on, on the Hong Kong side is they got a burner iPhone and stuck it in the BSL-3 because what goes into the BSL-3 doesn't come out unless it's it's basically autoclave. So mm-hmm. basically they took an iPhone that they were going to leave in there forever because you couldn't bring it back right. out. And she got on the Chinese equivalent of WhatsApp, which is called WeChat, would get up in the middle of the night and just talk them through how to set up the robot wow. and how to do the assay. And do. And this was probably like two to three weeks of her getting up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh. And then she would come in during the day and do her work. <laughs> um, so and, um, yeah, and I, I mean, this was, you know, hats off to these folks, right? I mean... You know, I was in there for emotional support, but Laura Riva, Laura Martin, Zinn, uh, Yuan, and, you know, the entire world had shut down around them. Right. And they were in there kind of day in, day out, 15-hour days. So we were able to teach them how to screen, and they were able to get the 13,000 compounds assessed. And by that time, it was March, and we had... Uh, an isolate from Washington that we could access here. Okay. So we got it in the lab here, so then we started start working with that. 
And then we published remdesivir was one of the drugs that we found, but that had already kind of taken off, but it was good to see. And then we had published uh, at least 20 other drugs that could be potentially used for, for SARS-CoV-2. And then, you know, we went on to show that in, you know, in hamsters it works and, and so on. And then, you know, we, we try to move into clinical trials. Fortunately for the world, unfortunately for us, these drugs like remdesivir and uh, Paxlovid were then coming in and getting approved. So kind of the need for these drugs kind mm -hmm. of were, were dropping, right? And, right? and so we started pivoting to trying to understand the virus better. And so really on the tail end of the pandemic, I mean, we kept doing some drug discovery with, uh, with Caliber, but we pivoted to trying to understand the virus the immunological response to the virus, and, and what can we do to not only understand this virus better, but kind of the next coronavirus. Yeah, that, whatever whatever comes to Right, next. right. Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone, you know, has stories around the beginning of the pandemic, but the fact that you, in December 2019, had this experience months before the rest right. of the world did, right. and, you know, had a kind of already had two months to mentally consider what was happening and contemplate, it's crazy. Yeah. How do we need to better prepare yeah. ourselves? What do we need to do? I'm sure that's a lengthy, exhaustive list, yes. but uh, at that and, high level, look, I mean. I think we need to start, we have, after 9-11, we had a Department of Homeland Security that coordinated all of this, right? That was, you know, and, and, and it's not a, just a domestic issue, right? It is an mm. international issue. Uh, it's, yeah, it's right? a huge, it's a yeah. global public yeah. health yeah. issue. It's a global public health issue. We still need to coordinate with the other countries, especially the countries that see the higher proportion of zoonotic transmission, to get early warning signs, to stockpile, but also to have the infrastructure to respond, mm -hmm. right? Immediately. Uh, immediately, right? We, we didn't have a unified plan. It was, you know, the states can do whatever they want. Well, you know, a virus doesn't know what a state boundary looks like, uh, no, right? No, it's it's the most insane policy. It is ridiculous. Yeah, I would say um, that time and time again. Yeah. that was all going on. And 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 I think that when we say that we're on war footing, we need to go on war footing. Mm -hmm. Our infrastructure was put pressure tested to the point of collapse. I mean, mm -hmm. near collapse. And I think that because you know we shouldn't take uh, the fact that it didn't happen as uh, an indication that it's not going to happen, right. but exactly. that we have to, you know, reinforce our institutions, our infrastructure. I mean, our, our, our medical system is, is so fractured and balkanized, right? I mean, those points where the hospitals can talk with each other and health agencies can, can share data and all, all of this stuff needs to be put into place mm -hmm. now. It would be, you know, immensely useful for a pandemic, but it'll pay dividends uh, for a lot of uh, other, other health, yeah. But, you know, it, it requires boldness of action, right? And it requires leadership and it requires the general populace to say, hey, uh, we demand that this doesn't happen again. Right. What are you going to do about mm -hmm. it? And I like what you said, too, about this is a top-down issue and then also a bottom-up issue. It really just needs to be this full concerted effort to handle the situation. And, right, what did we learn from right. the past almost right. three years now, and how can we actually translate that into the future? Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you're in the lab and you love being in the lab, but what are some of the, your hobbies and interests when you do manage to make it outside? Yeah, so um, you know, I try to take advantage of Southern California as, as much as possible. Um, you know, hiking, um, you know, either 
right here on Torrey Pines. I know, Torrey Pines is so beautiful. After work, I just went on, on Sunday, just hiking around. Um, you know, go go up to the, the desert out in Joshua Tree. Love Joshua Tree. Me too. Um, a little bit too crowded now, so I'm hoping people... Uh, forget yeah, about it. Forget about it, it post-pandemic. <laughs> um, a friend of mine owns a cabin up in Idlewild. So, oh, I do. Yeah. yeah, I feel like Idlewild is a secret escape. It is. That here it, that no one really talks it, it about. Is, and I want to keep it that yeah, way. But it's a world away, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you can in the winter you can go up and get snow. Fantastic hiking. Uh, but really just chance to disconnect. I play soccer uh, once or twice a week. Uh, just like being outside and you know in San Diego you can play mm -hmm. year-round uh, which is fantastic. Last thing is uh, scuba diving. Oh okay. So my son actually really wanted to go uh, learn scuba diving and I just uh, fell in love with it right. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things where you can't really think about anything else when you're doing it right. right. First thing you're paying attention to your safety and your buddy's safety and then you're enjoying the beauty and then beyond that, you can totally and absolutely unplug. Yeah, disconnect. Right, just disconnect. You just can't afford to think about every anything else. Right. And and, and it's and so that's you know that that's one of my You're, more recent hobby. I've been doing cool. it for about ten years now. Oh wow. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, I the thought of scuba diving is incredibly intriguing to me. However, even though my last name is Fish, that's always been kind of terrifying <laughs> yes. to me. Just I don't like to know what I'm necessarily swimming with, even though I love being in the ocean and everything. It's actually, you know, when you get down there, it's more calming. I than mean, you might think. Than you might think. I mean, I've been in a school of maybe three, 400 fish, and they let me swim with them. Right, it was like everywhere. That's so cool. And they were just, I was just one of them. They were behind <laughs> me, above me, on top of me, below yeah. me. And, you know, and once they realized I wasn't a threat, I was just kind of swimming That's around amazing. with them. What then, an amazing yeah, way to disconnect, yeah, too. Yeah, just yeah. surrounded by all this beauty. And... Yeah. Okay, last question. Yes. If you could give one piece of advice to an up-and-coming scientist, mm -hmm. what would that be and why? Perseverance, right? I think mm -hmm. that's that's the key here, right? Um, and, you know, it's it's a tough gauntlet to run, right? Um, and and I, I ran it, right? I mean, you know, you get out of college, your friends are getting jobs, right? Uh, you get out of grad school, your friends are, you know, now own a house and Right. And, you know, I mean, it is a lot of training um, for really not a lot of financial security. And you get to a point where you're just like, oh, there's a pot of gold over here. I'm just going to get off the treadmill and, and, and jump on it. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're really passionate about it. Right. And I think most people, again, get into science. You know, it's not for the fame or money. It's, it's because of the that passion. curiosity, that passion. Curious. Uh, right. Stick with it. Right. Um, you know, I think that the rewards will exceed the pain and, you know, there is, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of pain, but I found that, and, and, and more and more, right, I think graduate students are coming up, up against this question, right, mm -hmm. you know, is it really worth the sacrifice, right? And, you know, I, I would say that, look, if you are passionate about it, if this is what you love, um, it is worth the sacrifice, mm -hmm. right? It is really worth persisting and don't be kind of tempted by short-term gain because your ability to make an impact longer term, right, is just immeasurable. I view it as very few of us in, in really the history of civilization are given the opportunity to change the world, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, if you're doing a PhD or you're doing a postdoc, you are really 
uh, uh, are given that opportunity, right? You are given the tools to really make an impact, not just the people around you, but across the, uh, across the globe and across civilization. Not everyone will do it. This is, you know, I mean, this is, this is kind of just part of doing things that are, that are risky and, and so on. And so, you know, you can get your reward in kind of doing the daily science, the daily discovery. But just remember, you have these, these, this gift, mm -hmm. this tool, and, and very few people have that, right? And so if you really have the passion to do it, really make the most of it, right? Don't be discouraged at, you know, you will fail. And, you know, and, and, and I always say, if you're not failing enough, you're not doing anything important, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, I think that you have to fail a lot and you have, but that's, that's part of it, but that's part of making that impact. And I think that eventually what I found is that the good people, the smart people and the people who work hard uh, rise to the top, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's a hard road. Uh, I'm not going to say it's not, but if you do have the passion and the drive, I really want you to keep being persistent and really dogging your way through it. Mm -hmm. And and look, we all went through that. It's tough, right? Your stuff, especially you know, um, here at Scripps, you know, you know, maybe you have a kid, and maybe you know, um, you know, all your friends are buying you know million dollar houses and things it, it's hard right it's mm -hmm. hard but it's it's temporary right and i can tell you now that when i talk to my other friends who have jobs that made money and they look at me and they're like oh, we're trying to figure out how to retire right and i'm like i don't want to you retire don't want to. and i think I that's want, the yeah. most incredible yeah. thing that you don't want yeah. to, that no, every I, day that I, I really i went to my financial advisor like where do you when do you want to retire you know and, and the numbers like set at 65 i'm like I don't know if they let me work till 75. <laughs> the guy was looking at me like I had four heads. They're like, wait, you want to keep working? That's so amazing, though. Uh, I mean, the f that's irreplaceable, right? Yeah, like what you were yeah. saying, the fact that you have this curiosity driving your life, right. not necessarily, you know, a quest for right. a bigger house or, you know, some other ceaseless thing. And then look, every day I'm lucky to be given this opportunity, right? I mean, I don't think that I deserve it. <laughs> there are a hundred people like me that are as smart as me and work as hard as me, but you know, I, I feel like I've been really fortunate, right, to be given the opportunity that I have been given, right? You know, I mean, I'm literally a first generation American. Mm -hmm. um, my parents came here with very little money. And I think this is one of those only in America stories, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, within one generation, I have the opportunities that I've been given. Right. Yeah, and to change the world. Uh, and yeah. to, to have that, and, and I feel like, look, yeah, um, I do have, I feel like I have a debt to society, but you know, I know it's not a debt if you, if you love, love doing it. This is why I think I'm just, just fortunate, mm -hmm. right? And I, I really can't put it in any other way, right? Yeah. It just, you know. Well, that gratitude speaks volumes as well. And I'm sure your parents are very proud of you now for pursuing a career. In uh, yeah, science. I think, uh, yeah, no, I, th I think that, uh, you know, I think it, it all worked out at the end. If you're not failing enough, you're not doing anything important. A piece of wisdom that I think we could all benefit from. Many thanks to Sumit for joining us today and sharing his experiences as part of the COVID-19 Dream Team and beyond. Be sure to take a look at the show notes for more information on Sumit's research and some of the other cool content we produce here at Scripps Research. A big thank you to tuning in today, and we look forward to having you next time.